0: The statistics tell us that intimate partner homicide is far more common than any of us would like to believe, with nearly one out of five murder victims being killed by a person they were in a romantic relationship with. It's hard to understand how love and passion can turn to hate and violence, but if you look at the studies, it seems the most common motive is jealousy. When the woman in the relationship is the attacker and the man is the victim, and there's a history of domestic violence between them, We have to examine the details a bit more closely because for society as a whole, it's hard to determine what is right, what is wrong, and what is a moral gray area. In January of 2019, after allegedly dealing with years of physical abuse and emotional neglect, 46-year-old Danielle Redlick stabbed her husband of over a decade. It would be 11 hours before she would call 911 to report his death at which time she claimed 65-year-old Michael Redlick had died from a heart attack after stabbing himself. During a police investigation, law enforcement discovered that the true situation was not as straightforward as Danielle had made it seem, and she was soon under arrest for murder. But during her trial, all of the details came out, painting a complicated picture of a relationship that had maybe always been far from perfect.
1: The evidence is going to show that from the start, This defendant did everything she could to avoid responsibility for her actions. The evidence will show that she engages in a significant but failed attempt to clean up the scene. You're going to see the photographs from when law enforcement arrived, everything that Ms. Redlick did to try to avoid responsibility, to try to make this seem like something that it wasn't. Blood-soaked towels, mops, soaked in blood. Five-gallon bucket full of pinkish water. The smell of cleaning fluid striking the nose of the law enforcement officers and CSIs that enter that home. Blood in the primary bedroom shower, which you will learn because you're going to hear from a DNA analyst from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, it is Michael's DNA, is Michael's blood.
2: On the night of January 11, 2019... Someone was very, very angry. This someone started to physically attack their spouse. They had rage. They were choking their spouse, smothering their spouse. That someone was Michael Redlick, And Daniel Redlick had no choice but to defend herself because she was afraid she was going to die. And so she did.
1: So you stood in that home with the power to call for help and you let your husband bleed to death on that floor.
2: You are going to hear about anger. You're gonna hear about hatred. You're gonna hear about rage. You're gonna hear about infidelity that made Michael Redlick angry. You're gonna hear about a violent attack in the kitchen. And then you're gonna hear about Daniel Redlick and how she reacted in confusion, in despair, in trauma, you will hear that yes, Danielle Redlick did stab Michael Redlick. And you're gonna hear how she reacted in that shock, in that confusion, and in that despair.
3: Ms. Redlick, on January eleventh, twenty nineteen, did you stab your husband?
2: I did.
0: Everybody, welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow
4: and I'm Derek Lavasser.
0: So today we're talking about a case that happened in 2019. It just went to trial this year like a couple of weeks ago, and this is going to be a very tough case not only to talk about but just to kind of figure out where we stand on it because although we do have one clear victim who is Michael Redlick, he's no longer alive to tell his side of the story and then we have also another potential victim who also happens to be the killer of Michael. And I think that there's important conversations to be had about this case and about what happened between Michael and Danielle Redlick, conversations about long-term domestic violence, conversations about self-defense and conversations about the historic response of the justice system in cases where women kill their partners and in cases where these women claim that if she hadn't, she would have been the one who didn't make it out alive. And, You know, to truly understand what happened in this case, we need to examine the relationship between Michael and Danielle Redlick. And this was a relationship that started far before that fateful day in January of 2019, when one of their many arguments turned violent and then fatal.
4: So before we dive into this week's episode, I just wanted to say uh, a big thank you to everyone who came out to the Crime Weekly meetup in London. It was uh, a lot of fun. It was great meeting all of you. We started at a pub, a local pub right near the hotel. We were there for a couple hours and, and usually that's kind of the end of it. But because m- most of uh, the people who attended were staying at the same hotel as us, we essentially just like, what was it, like 30 of us? Yeah.
0: We rolled deep.
4: <laughs> yeah. We, we went We went back to the hotel and we actually got kicked out of the rooftop bar before we even got in because they were just like, You're not coming in here with all these people. But we had a lot of good memories we made. We spent all night together. Basically, we were out in the back till God knows what time in the morning. And it was really just a nice thing. I had said it to a few of the individuals we met there that it's always great for Stephanie and I to, to meet you in person because it puts a face with the comments. Stephanie and I get to see each other every week via camera. Um, and yes, we're talking to each other, but we're also talking to you in many cases. So it's nice to actually meet some of you and we've done it now for both Vegas and for London. And I think we're going to continue to do it and I'm rocking my London shirt tonight. It was a lot of fun over there. Glad to be home, glad to be back in the, on the grind working, but, um, But it was fun and I'm glad we went.
0: Yeah, it was fun. And then our hotel caught on fire and that was interesting and we lost power. And then, you know, it was kind of like a purge situation.
4: No air conditioning for two days. We
0: didn't have air conditioning. We were running around in the dark. And I know there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be like, you were in London. Most people in London don't have air conditioning. Yes, but most hotels do. (laughs) And we are used to having it. So (laughs) it was a very big, uh, very big culture shock for us. And everybody who was staying in that hotel, we were all hot and sweaty and smelly and it was just it was great. I thought it was fun. Um yeah, it was fun. We did a lot of drinking too, because when the power's off, what what else do you do?
4: Yeah, there was a lot of drinking, a lot of laughter. Um, and, and it was a good time overall. Yeah, we you know, we made lemonade out of lemons for sure. But it was good. Nancy from CrimeCon UK did a great job based on what she had to deal with. Um overall, I think the event was a success. I'm pretty sure uh, from what I've heard, a lot of the people who attended Um, who stayed at the hotel, got reimbursed for those nights. So it looks like everything's going to work out for everybody. And uh, again, just thank you to everybody who came out. And thank you to everyone who supports the channel who may not have been in London or Vegas, but still supports us from afar. We appreciate it. And hopefully, as we continue to do these, uh, we will eventually meet you in person as well.
0: All right. So once again, we're we're starting a new case this week. And you don't know anything about it, do you?
4: Never heard of this case. I know some people are going to be like, gasp. How do you not know, how do you not know about this, Derek? But I have I asked you to spell the name for me because i, I I've never heard of. Danielle Redlick or Michael Redlick. So this is going to be absolutely foreign to me.
0: I mean, surprisingly enough, I had never heard about it either. And I am surprised because when I first, I it popped up because uh, in the, one of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial things popped up on my recommended and I accidentally hit it because obviously that trial is not happening anymore. And then in the recommended to that trial was this one, and I looked at it, and I clicked on it, and I was like, I've never heard of this before. And then I started watching, and I was hooked. And I said, oh, we have to cover this on uh, Crime Weekly. And I sent it to you, and I said, what about this? And you said, yeah, let's go for it. I don't I don't know what it is about, but that's pretty much the norm with us now. And you guys seem to like that format.
4: Yeah. We'll see. We had some people tell us in London, like, there's no way you don't know these cases are the script. I'm like, I honestly don't. <laughs> I, I honestly don't. So we had a lot of conversations about that. But looking forward to it, as always. These ones are pretty good when I like to mix it up. Where we had Aaron Hernandez, I knew a little bit about that one. Obviously, Brittany Drexel, I had heard a little bit about it, but didn't know the most recent developments. And this one, I'm just completely blind, flying blind here.
0: Yeah, you told me that, that people said, there's no way you don't know or read the scripts yeah. before we sit down. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't have the time to read the scripts before we sit down.
4: <laughs> no, I'm just a, I'm an incredible actor if I'm doing it because I, I truly... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just really good at guessing.
0: So, actually, let us know in the comments if you've heard of this case before. Because uh, uh, this past week, I actually had a couple people recommend it, and I didn't put two and two together until I saw the name, and I was like, "Oh, okay, okay, I see." So, we're we're uh, helping everybody out here because um, people already recommended it. But let's talk a little bit about Michael and Danielle Redlick, the relationship that they had, it didn't begin in what I guess we would consider to be the usual way. Danielle met Michael in 1996 when she was 22 years old and he was 43, so she, he's 21 years older than her, and uh, she found him to be worldly and smart, and he introduced her to things she'd never experienced before, and the two of them had actually started living together before they even began dating, and this was due to the fact That before Michael Redlick was Danielle's boyfriend and then her husband, he was her stepfather. Michael Redlick would be married three times in his life. His second wife was a woman named Kathleen Aquino, and this was Danielle's mother. And Kathleen and Michael had been dating for three years before they tied the knot in 1997, and they were living together in Cleveland, Ohio. Sadly, shortly after starting her relationship with Michael, Kathleen discovered that she had aggressive stage 4 breast cancer, and she passed away three months after the marriage, leaving Michael the stepfather of her five children, including Danielle, who was the oldest. When Kathleen died, Michael asked her adult daughter, Danielle, to reside with him in the home, he had previously shared with her mother because he was now responsible for Danielle's two youngest siblings.
5: Uh, so after my mother passed, um, the two younger children were, st- were in high school, my younger brother and sister, and they were living in the home with Michael and my mother. And so after she passed, um, my younger brother went to live with my stepfather, back with him, and my mother asked me if I wanted to... Um, move in, that he would continue to rent the home that they were renting so that my sister could at least finish to um, another year of high school where she was. And so I agreed. Um, and I was working and going to school at the time.
4: All right. So this is really interesting. As you were saying it, sometimes I'm writing as you're speaking and I mishear what you're saying. And so I don't want to interrupt. And I'm like, I'll catch up. I'll, I'll double back to it if I don't. And when you said, um, that Michael, before he was her husband, was her stepfather. I'm like, nah, I definitely heard that wrong, but I'll you know, I'll write you. Know, let's just keep going. I don't want to interject yet, but no, uh, I guess I heard right. So you're saying, not to regurgitate what you just said, Michael was married to Danielle's mother before they were ever married.
0: Yeah, it's super awkward, and um, I watched the whole. That's trial. a first for me. Yeah, it's 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 a first. Um, I mean, I'm sure it happens. I'm sure it happens, but um, I was watching the trial. And you can see the live chat, even though it's not live, it's still like going, you know, kind of how when we do lives, you can replay the live chat. And I saw people say in the comments like, oh, so she was an adult. He wasn't really her stepfather. And it's like, no, (laughs) he was really her stepfather. Like, yeah, he didn't raise her, but that doesn't make him not her stepfather. You know, like legally, he was married to her mother, which makes him her stepfather. And right off the bat. I think we have some uneven and strange dynamics happening. I mean, he's 21 years older than her to begin with. He did start off as her stepfather. That's how she was introduced to him, her mother's husband, and now, you know, you're in a relationship. That's romantic.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I really just, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I don't I think we're probably all feeling the same way. I don't think anybody out there is going No, that seems that seems pretty normal to me.
0: You'd be surprised.
4: And if you are, I want to know where you live. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So Michael Redlich had actually practiced law for 13 years before going back to school so that he could pursue his true passion which was in the sports arena, not actually as an athlete, but as like an executive. When he set out on this new path, he began moving up and making a name for himself in his new career very quickly. And by the time Danielle moved in with him, he had already worked as an executive with the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Cleveland Browns. And I think the Cavaliers is an NBA team and the Browns is an NFL team. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong.
4: No, you're right. Cleveland Cavaliers, basketball team, old LeBron James team and Cleveland Browns. Uh, still stink.
0: <laughs> so Danielle claims that for a few years they lived together, not romantically. They shared the domestic duties of the house and the kids while they both worked and went about their lives. But Michael was very supportive of Danielle and her hopes and dreams for the future, almost like a father would be and he showed constant support and encouragement even offering to use some of his contacts in the professional sports landscape to help Danielle find a job now at this time Danielle was going to school and working part-time as a bartender at night and Michael would sometimes visit her at the bar that she worked at and his visits became more and more frequent until he would be stopping by every time she had a shift They began going places together, like out to dinner or to concerts. And after some time of this, the nature of their relationship, it turned from friendly to romantic. At this time, uh, Michael was very motivated to move up in his career. And so when he was given the opportunity to interview for a position with the NBA team, the Memphis Grizzlies, he was excited about it. And he was even more excited when he got the job, which meant that he would be moving to Memphis, Tennessee and Michael wanted Danielle to move with him, but at first, she was hesitant.
5: Um, But at that point, I hadn't really disclosed to my family that we were actually seeing each other. So um, I wasn't entirely comfortable with it, Um, you know, just because he had been with my mother, and it was just kind of a little bit weird. So I told him no, that I I wanted to also stay back with my family. My entire family lived in Cleveland,
0: so... I wasn't willing to do that at that point. Okay. So even she thinks it's weird. <laughs> so
4: Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. I can see here we here I go again, being devil's advocate. We've already acknowledged we think it's a really odd situation, but I can see how two people spending a lot of time together, going places, um, both being adults, even though there's a big age gap, could I guess somehow develop feelings for each other. I just think there's better options, better choices. But I, I mean, I don't think it's completely just this crazy idea to think that two people living in the same home together, sharing experiences with each other could develop genuine feelings. Uh, so I'll give them that. We'll leave it at that.
0: <laughs> I don't know. No, no. I'm going to go too much. Certainly not. Um, you can't help who you love, right? You can't help who you're attracted to. That's that's you know been known for a while. So, I mean, personally... I would hope to never be in that position because that is an odd and awkward conversation to have with your family. Like, Michael, don't worry. Yeah, that's a tough one. He's still in the family. You know, he's still he's still a part of this. <laughs> I'm just going to take the that's torch. That's a tough one to... Yeah. So Michael understood her reservations, but they still kept the relationship going with him flying her out to Memphis almost every single weekend. And one of these weekends, about a year after Michael had left Cleveland... He picked Danielle up from the airport and he drove her to an area of Memphis called Mud Island, a small peninsula bordered by the Mississippi River. He drove her to this beautiful home. He parked outside and he announced that he had purchased this house and he had purchased it for he and Danielle to live in together. So Danielle moved to Memphis, Michael used his contacts to help her get a job in the radio industry, and their life together moved forward. Now, according to Danielle, their relationship was 99.9% great. They enjoyed their time together, they enjoyed each other's company, they got along fine. However, Michael had already been physically violent with her once before they moved to Memphis. They had still been living in Cleveland when they'd attended a concert together. And while they were at that concert, Danielle had seen an ex-boyfriend, and this had apparently bothered Michael to the point or he brought it up as they were driving home from the concert.
5: It was accusing me of wanting to have gone to the concert with the ex, and we sort of got into an argument about it. And I remember I made an offensive comment, which I wouldn't make today. Um, I, I called him. I said he was, I said at least he wasn't, Um, Jewish and cheap, and he backhanded me in the face and mouth, and my mouth started bleeding and my nose started bleeding, and we were in the car at this point, and so when I got to the red light, I wanted to get out of the car, and he grabbed me, and I grabbed him back, and we kind of just went back and forth in the car, and we actually got uh, pulled over.
4: All right, not to skip too far ahead, but we always try to take lessons out of this, and obviously at this point, I've heard the teaser, so I'd have to be a complete idiot not to know... To some extent, where this is going to go. Um, and to hear this um, pretty early on in the relationship, this is something that I think we can all learn from. You know, it's not just about Danielle or Michael, it's about you guys out there and the relationships that you're in. And, you know, when you hear about these stories that we cover, they're pretty extreme. By the time we cover them, there's usually a death, something of that nature. We're not just covering, not that they're not important, but we're not just covering domestic assaults. Um, but they usually start like that. And I think that's important because when these initially happened, just like this incident happened after this concert or during this concert, I can promise you that Danielle nor Michael thought it was going to escalate to the point down the road where one of them would end up dead. And so I'll leave it at that because I don't know the extent of what happened. I know we're going to dive into all the details, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing uh, and developing our own opinion. But just hearing the teaser and now hearing this. You think about all the forks in the road and the opportunities to make a change or make a different choice as far as do you continue with the relationship, do you not? Um, and and these are one of those situations where I think that we can all learn from and say, hey, if, the, if he's doing this now, he'll do it again.
0: Yeah. And on that note, you know, in, in court, um, Danielle's asked, you know, why didn't you end the relationship at this point? You haven't moved. You're not married. You don't have kids why not leave at this point? And she claims she didn't end the relationship because Michael later apologized to her and he explained that he was sensitive about those types of comments and they really bothered him. And she'd understood that and she was able to move past it.
4: Like that's a justification, you know? Oh, he said called me a name. So I, I'm not saying it was right what I did, but that's why I did it. So if he's doing it for something over that, imagine if it's a real issue, uh, what he's going to do. And like I just said, If they've done it once before, and this goes with almost anything, they're capable of doing it again.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure many people listening, including myself, have had experience with that. And it's never, um, I really can't say in my experience, it's ever been just once. So, um, you know, but I will say she's young. She may not have had long-term relationships. I mean, she was just 22 at this point, right? She may not have had any long-term relationships before. She may not know Or understand what she's getting into here. And you'll see with her later, she has this sort of almost, uh, you know, Sherry Papini, like kind of wants that fairy tale ending. And that could have something to do with it. She probably truly thought that he would would stop and it was a one-time thing. But in Memphis, the incidences of violence between them escalated. As did the amount of alcohol that Michael Redlick was consuming on a regular basis, which seemed to coincide with his dissatisfaction at work.
5: He was coming home from work every day, and he was pretty agitated. Something was really bothering him. I just remember that it was something had to do with something with two of his bosses, and um, he was coming home, and he was pouring a drink each night, and. Um, I was so pretty young at that point, so I grew up in a house where you eat dinner every night, and I noticed that Michael, when he would drink, he would skip dinner, and so he was doing this by the third night. um, I started to wonder, you know, are you going to keep doing this? I think I'm just going to go ahead and, if you're not going to eat dinner, I'm just going to go down to to the river. There's some, you know, a city walk where they have some shops and eateries and stuff, and... When I said that, he got irritated and said, what, are you mad because I don't want to have dinner with you? And I said, well, yeah, kind of at this point, because I said, how's the wallowing working out for you? He said something sarcastic. And I went to head to the door to leave, and he was near the door, and he moved in front of the door. And um, I tried to shove past him, and I feel like at that point, he he raises his fist, and he just crossed me in the face, and I feel like... I don't know, like, he took out every frustration that he had had that week on me, and um, the next thing I remember was actually laying in his lap, and he was stroking me, and he was apologizing, and he was crying, and um, I had looked down, and I had blood all over me, and he was telling me how sorry he was that going to take me out to a nice dinner tomorrow and he wanted to go ahead and take care of me let him take care of me that night
0: we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back okay so we're back from break As a police officer, I'm sure you answered many calls for domestic violence. I'm sure you spoke to and interviewed many victims of domestic violence. And do you find this to be a pattern, the initial abuse, and then the apologetic behavior afterwards? You know, the man's super sweet. He's got nothing but nice things to say. He's a completely different person. Do you think that's psychological in some way on the part of the abuser to sort of like go the extra mile, be very extra nice so that the, the abused, the victim actually thinks that they are going to change and that it is going to be different? Or do you think it's a way of like taking their guilt away?
4: I think it's um I definitely you've experienced it before. I've said it in past episodes where I'll have, you know, in most cases, a woman who's been assaulted, broken ribs, fractured eye, orbital bone, whatever you want to have and I'm the one going to the you know hospital and the rescue with them. Fast forward three months later when we're going to trial and they're chucking me the bird. This actually happened to me. They're flipping me off in court because in Rhode Island, even if the victim no longer wishes to pursue it, if there's a probable cause to believe a domestic assault has been committed, they'll go forward with it. And they look at me as the enemy. So now I have both the victim and the offender united against me like I'm the bad guy. But no, back to your point. I do think there's some manipulation. I think it's something where the offender will try to convince them that it you know, it was something out of character for them. It was a spontaneous thing that just occurred and will never happen again. And I also think it's something, like you said earlier, where you have a victim who, for the most part, loves this individual and they love them before, they love them during, and they love them after, and they want to believe what they're saying. So I think it's a two-way street where the offender is saying the right things And the victim is hoping that they're telling the truth. So it's a really tough situation. I can't imagine being in it where, you know, deep down, they know the victim knows what's the right thing to do. But, you know, the heart, the heart sometimes can, can really pull you in the wrong direction. Even though your brain is telling you one thing, a lot of times the heart will supersede that and. You can find yourself in an even worse situation than you were in the first time.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, this altercation was was pretty bad because Danielle, you know, obviously her face is bruised, but she also had a chipped tooth and she told Michael, you know, she needed to see a doctor. And he said, you know, not tonight. I'm going to take care of you tonight. And then the next day when he returned from work, he actually brought her to see the doctor of his team, the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, a Dr. Frederick Azar. And Dr. Azar gave Danielle the names of a dentist and a plastic surgeon. Danielle also said that Michael had claimed he'd told Dr. Azar how she'd gotten injured and that they could not go to another doctor because then he might get into trouble. Now, keep in mind, this is Danielle's version of events that she's telling during the trial. Um, They do have, you know, corresponding evidence for certain medical visits and things. But the things that Michael says... Those are pretty much coming from her, and so it secondhand. And as I said in in the intro, he's not here to refute or support those statements. And I just want to keep that in mind because, once again, this is a difficult case. It's back and forth. You kind of don't know what to believe. You don't know how to feel. You don't really know how much—I mean, she's on trial for murder, right? So is she going to make it seem worse than it was? Is she going to fabricate things? I'm not saying that she is or that she would, but there's always the possibility, right, because at the end of the day, she might go to prison for murder if she doesn't convince a jury that what she did was justified. So just to be fair to everybody here and try to remain unbiased, she claims that Michael said this, that he had told Dr. Azar what had happened and that he couldn't bring her to another doctor because he might get into trouble. Danielle also said that she did not bring up Michael's assault with Dr. Azar because he never asked and she never told anyone else about it because she didn't want him to get into trouble. Danielle loved Michael, and she still felt there was a lot of good in the relationship. Besides, Michael was incredibly apologetic and clearly knew he had done something wrong. Their first child, a daughter named Jaden, was born in 2003, And Michael and Danielle got married the following year. After Jaden was born, things were great. They loved being parents, their careers were going well, and their relationship was on steady ground, but it didn't last. After some time, Michael became more and more unhappy in his job with the Grizzlies due to some changes being made in management. And when his direct boss, Andy, left the team to take a job with the San Francisco 49ers, Michael was passed up for a promotion. And Danielle knew that this upset him because he complained about it at home constantly. This was right around the time that their second and last child, a son named Sawyer, was born. And the tension spilling over from work caused Michael to drink more, which caused more arguments at home. Because Michael was so agitated and preoccupied with issues from work, he started to become withdrawn from Danielle. He was distant, less attentive, and even sometimes mean. There were times of violence where he would grab Danielle by the throat, push her into a wall, scream at her, and when this happened, she said she would simply leave the house and go to her sisters until he cooled off. In 2009, Michael's old boss from the Grizzlies, Andy, who had taken that job with the 49ers, he was able to also secure Michael a position on that team as well. So Michael... Danielle and their two young children moved from Memphis to California, and for a year, they rented places and enjoyed their new surroundings. After renting for a year, they purchased a house in California, but shortly after that, Michael's boss, Andy, was let go from the 49ers, and Michael once again became burdened by work stress, feeling that with the changes on the team happening and with Andy being dismissed, he would now have a target on his back. Apparently, the owner of the team had put his 27-year-old nephew in charge, and I guess this guy would, like, belittle Michael during the meetings, and Michael didn't feel like he was getting respect, and, you know, he was older than the guy, so it was like a kind of thorn in his side. And every night, Michael would come home completely, like, beaten and downtrodden, and he would turn to the battle.
5: Very upset. Um, I'd never seen him so kind of beat down and, um, just disturbed, um, and he would tell me about what was going on at work. And they eventually put him on probation.
3: So how is this affecting your relationship?
5: Well, when he was coming home, I started to worry about him because um, just to, he started drinking a lot more, a lot more. Um, I remember the kids were small, and I was kind of trying to shield them from it a little bit. Um, I actually, you could see our, um, from our family room, you could see out into our garage, and I told him that he was going to have to start out to the garage every night if this was what he was going to be doing. And I remember watching him often out there pacing back and forth, chain smoking and drinking. And I was worried about him. And I think it was because he was losing his job and we had just bought this home. So I just kind of let him do his thing and, you know, sort of just watched
0: after the children while he did. At this time, Danielle was not actively working, but she claims she did things to try and help ease the financial burden, like speaking to their daughter's private Catholic school to see if they could get a reduction in tuition, and she did get a job at the San Francisco Chronicle, but for a long time, they had no income, and they were living off their savings, which seemed to put a great deal of pressure on Michael until he had the opportunity to move on again. To uh, Indiana in 2014 to work for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It was a good job with a good salary, and Michael moved to Indianapolis first, leaving Danielle and the kids behind to sell the house and tie up loose ends in California which took about a year to do. During that year, Danielle and Michael did not see each other more than six times. When she and the kids did get to Indianapolis, Michael seemed less burdened by work issues, but he was still distant with Danielle and their sex life was almost non-existent. With the money issues being taken care of, Danielle could not figure out why their relationship had not improved as well.
5: I didn't know what was wrong initially, but he had uh, he had a couple health issues he was dealing with a knee problem and he was just being distant and um cranky mean um and i didn't know why cuz i thought the situation had improved with the job and you know taken some tension off of his shoulders um so i didn't i couldn't really pinpoint it so i finally asked him and he said um oh you noticed and i said well of course but you know i just thought it with everything with the job changes, you know, and he said, no, actually he was seeing a doctor in California about some issues that he had, um, low testosterone. And like I said, he had a knee problem. And
3: yeah. Did you know, you said that he was seeing someone in California, a doctor in California. Did you know about it when you were living in California? I
5: didn't
3: know. No. So this is something you came to find out when you were living in Indiana.
5: Right.
4: Now I don't know anything about this, this story, but I worked a case When I did break in homicide out in Hawaii, where it was kind of a similar situation where the husband, um, moved out to Hawaii before the wife and the children who stayed in California actually come to find out he was, he was, uh, seeing other women. So I'm interested to see how this goes. I know what she's saying right now. Again, I have not read forward. This could, I might be completely wrong here, but usually it sounds like the behavior of someone who, um maybe seeing someone else and may have found that person while she was still back in California.
0: Yeah, because a year is a long time to not see your spouse. Like, besides six times, you know, six times in a year, that's not even once a month. So that's definitely a long time. But, you know, as she said, Michael was seeing a doctor because apparently he he not only had low testosterone, but erectile dysfunction. So I'm not sure if he has someone on the side right now because- you know, I mean, if it doesn't work and then it doesn't can't work, really use it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Right. No, you can just say it. You know, if you, <laughs> if you don't have a tool in the toolbox, you can't use it. Can't right?
0: use it. Yeah. <laughs> so it may have been a frustration. Maybe he wanted to, you know, have some companionship that year, but it just wasn't it wasn't happening. So he couldn't have that. And then she was, you know, away across the country. And maybe he's just getting more and more frustrated, more sexually frustrated, more pissed off at himself, more down on himself. Who knows? But um, Danielle claims that at this point, like she finds out, OK, you've got erectile dysfunction, you've got low testosterone. There's a reason now. I see like this ex- explanation for why you may have been behaving the way that you've been behaving. And I'm relieved because it doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with our relationship or the way you feel about me. But then Michael told her that maybe his behavior did have something to do with her and their relationship.
5: I asked him at that point, I said, is this why you've been, you know, so mean and whatnot? And he said, oh, I guess there is some resentment. And I said, um, well, what do you mean toward me? And he said, yes. And he said, um, you know, that I was young and that, you know, he didn't feel invincible anymore. And he thought that I might leave him over this. And. At that point, I'm just glad he had been communicating with me because at least now I knew I could help.
3: Did you take steps to try and help?
5: I did. I assured him that that's not something I would leave him over. Um, I said, I knew you when. um, This is a medical thing. There's Viagra. And he said, "Um, no, that's not working. Um, He had been taking that for years, which I didn't know either. But um, I still went ahead and did some research for him, and I found... um, a male clinic that specializes in this kind of thing. Well, we went together to talk to these doctors and try and find some solutions. And um, we came out with a pretty good plan, I thought, anyway. Um, They were going to give him testosterone injections to bring up his testosterone levels. And I guess there was some new groundbreaking sort of medicine that he could, I guess there were, like, injections that would help him get an erection that he would have to do himself. At home? Yes.
3: And did he begin doing these treatments?
5: He did, yes. I thought it was a solution. I thought that at least the physical aspect was, you know, solved. Um, And perhaps it was, but I think there was a mental side on his level that wasn't quite solved.
4: Okay. So there appears to be some truth to what uh, some of the underlying issues might be. I had said maybe it's it's another woman, but... I got to tell you, if it's another woman and you're going to this extreme where you're injecting yourself with testosterone just to kind of cover your tracks, that's pretty extensive. So it does sound like at least that part of it um, appears to be truthful and 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 somewhat the issue here because, is again, I don't know if they'd be going through all that just to cover up another woman. I think he would, at that point he would just roll the dice and see what happens.
0: Yeah. And I mean, he says he's been taking Viagra for years, right? So this isn't something that happened overnight, but possibly something he's been hiding from her, which, you know, I think, I don't know. I'm not a man. So, uh, I don't know what.
4: No, I can see it. Yeah. I can see it. You're, especially when you're dating a younger woman, because there's probably this, you know, this self-consciousness where you're like, I'm already 20 years older than her. Um, I'm already kind of in an uphill battle here where there are men her age who are able to perform differently than I am at my age. So I'm sure he's already kind of concerned about that. And then to be in a situation where you have this young woman who's still sexually active and you can't uh, satisfy her in that way. I I can absolutely see how that would be um, a a hit to the ego for sure. At minimum, that'd be a tough pill to swallow.
0: But, you know, if we believe what she's saying and um, it's the only side we have to go on he he, sort of turned it around on her, right? Made her feel like, yeah, I can't get it up. And yeah, that's a medical problem. But yeah, I do still resent you for that because you're young and you might leave me. And like, I don't know how that logic adds up where like, I'm afraid you're going to leave me because you're younger. So it's your fault and I resent you for that. But, you know, this is um, something that you see. Like I said, if we believe everything she's saying, it's something you see in men who are controlling, men who are possessive. And uh, I mean, honestly, men that that view women or their women a little bit as like possessions that they don't want to lose instead of like people that need nurturing and the relationships need nurturing. And if you do that, it really wouldn't matter what happened in the relationship because you had this really strong foundation.
4: No, I think you're right. It's definitely a level of insecurity. And I think as far as his resentment, he's saying, you know, I wanted to be with this younger woman at the time, seemed like such a great idea. Now, now that I'm 40 and not working, the same way I used to work, I'm resenting the fact that you're so young. It's actually backfired on me because now I'm in a position where instead of being with someone uh, my own age who might be going some of the similar things that I'm going through, I have this concern now that this younger woman- sure, yeah.
0: Yeah,
4: that, that you know, could lead me for a man who's more equipped to satisfy her in the way she wants to be satisfied. And that, I think that's where it's at. And I don't agree with it, <laughs> obviously, but Right, we're trying to get in the mind of Michael who's no longer here which i think is important because we're going to get into the more deeper stuff we're building the foundation right now and i think these little details are where you can find out what really happened these are some of the things that may be overlooked by an investigator because they feel like well well how does this contribute to the overall case let's just get to the crime scene no these things are important as well and that's why we have to do it we have to break it down and dissect it and kind of do things that may to some of you seem Like overkill, it really isn't. Every single detail matters.
0: So after he began this treatment to address these medical issues, Michael's behavior did change. But he didn't return to the same man that Danielle had known and fallen in love with. She said he began to act bizarre in what she referred to as a sophomoric juvenile male behavior. She said he would do things that, you know, maybe he considered to be like sexy or like lustful towards her. But she felt they were inappropriate and a little aggressive, like he would make vulgar comments about her and to her. And she felt that he was treating her like an object, like she was his property. And he would become very sexually aggressive and sometimes even hurt her. There
5: were other instances where it would just come out of the blue, like perhaps we would be, I can tell things were bothering him. Um, I can give an example. Um, he was going to be going out of town for a, a work function um, for the week. And so he called me from work um, the day before and said, I'm going to bring home some movies and dinner. We're going to spend some time together tonight. And I said, OK. So he brought home dinner and alcohol, and we started watching the movie and there was a love scene and this happened often. I noticed he would get um, flustered and kind of start acting strange and um, during this particular movie he approached me and he was aggressive and, um, you know, I, I, I he was hurting me so I moved to a separate couch and I, I told him that that wasn't okay and he just continued to drink through the movie, and he passed out about halfway through, and I finished the movie, and at that point, I just went upstairs to bed. I turned everything off, and I let him know that I was going up to bed. He was snoring. Um, I didn't wake him up, so I went up to bed, and the next morning, he had to leave, get ready to go out of town, and then he came upstairs into the bedroom, and he said, why didn't you wake me up last night?
3: So when he says that, how how does it continue from there?
5: Um, so I'm in my bathroom at that point, and I'm brushing my teeth, and um, we're having this conversation, and... The next thing I know something hits me in the back of the head and I look and it's there's a box of tampons on the floor and I said did you hit me with that and he said yeah are you calling me a USSY and I said no what are you talking about and he said that I had left the box of tampons on his side of the sink what was I trying to say and this is just was very strange to me and I said I don't know those were just this just happened to be there I didn't do that on purpose didn't clean up the bathroom, sorry. And I was upset. And I said, maybe you are acting like that. Um, a PUSSY. And I walked away from him. And
3: he, How did he react when you walked away?
5: He said that he came up behind me and grabbed me from behind and started choking me. And um, I had never been choked that hard before by him. Um,
3: you did this a second ago. Can you show the jury how? With, with your hands, do a demonstration of how
5: He just came up behind me and yanked me really hard and pulled me close to his body and to the point where I couldn't breathe, and he cut off my um, air. And basically, was choking me out. Um, I started to pass out. I remember falling, and I remember thinking to myself, is he, oh, my God, is he going to kill me? And I remember reaching up, and I fell to my knees. And the next thing I know, I was sort of aware, and I was looking up at him, and he was just staring at me with this, like, surprised expression on his face. And he just, he reached out his hand and he said, I'm sorry. And I just crawled away from him into a corner. And I just, I was really frightened at that point and I couldn't believe it.
3: Can you describe the look on his face that you just referenced during this incident?
5: Um, Well, after the fact, he looked stunned and surprised himself, at himself, and remorseful at that point.
0: So if anybody heard this story about the tampons and thought that's unbelievable cuz I like I said I was watching the trial and I was watching the the live chat and people were like oh that's a made up story that's completely ludicrous nobody would ever do that no absolutely people will do that i've been in these situations where you will be out to dinner with friends and you'll make a completely innocuous like flippant statement and then you'll get home and your partner will be like oh when you said that at dinner i know you were talking about me and you'll be like what comment what are you talking about i was definitely not talking about you i don't even remember what comment and they've just been like festering on that and thinking about it and they feel like you've attacked them and you think you haven't you think you haven't done anything right so it's absolutely um, a a definite, definitely possible situation. Like when she's talking, I don't get the impression that she's making things up as she's going. I don't get the impression that this didn't happen um, or that she's like, you know, sensationalizing these stories. She, she comes off honest to me, at least in this part of uh, of her retelling. And it's a ridiculous thing, right, to just have somebody be like, did you did you leave these tampons here because you're calling me a pussy? And she's over here like what? We're not even on the same page. We're not even in the same book. What are you talking about? But but that is what happens, um, especially when when somebody's maybe not in the right mental state. Like they're going to take these little things that are happening and and think that they're attacks towards them, especially if they're already feeling vulnerable and anxious and kind of like um less than at that point. So definitely a realistic story and um a crazy one. I can't even imma- like I can't imagine. She just to throw a bat a box of tampons at you. Like are you calling me a pussy? And then of course, you know, she has to respond like, well maybe now you're acting like a pussy because it's gotta go back and forth. Because I mean at that point, what what do you do? What do you do in that situation? You don't think that this person's even serious. And then you realize when it becomes uh, physical, that that they are serious.
4: Yeah, I have a few thoughts on it. Let's take a quick break and then I'll, I'll weigh in. So we're back from break and I agree with everything you said, you know, so that's good. Um, it's definitely possible. Uh, I am, just to confirm here, she, in this trial that we're seeing all these clips from, she is on... Trial for murder, correct? Did they charge her with murder? They charged her with murder, yeah. Okay, so she's on trial for murder here. So that is something, whether you believe her or not, we have to take into consideration as we're evaluating you. Because I would agree with you that on the surface, it definitely looks like she's being authentic, she's telling the truth. However, if anyone would have an incentive to be on their A-game when explaining the trials and tribulations that led to the point where you killed someone... This These would be elements that you would want to make sure you got right and that you were believable. So like, I'm not suggesting that she's lying, but it is definitely a filter that we should all be looking at, when looking through when we're watching this on YouTube or you're listening on audio because she would have a reason to lie, right? So, yeah, man,
0: I already said that. Possible. I already said that. You know what's going to happen? This always happens. I say something and I'm like, I, blah, 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 blah. And then like five minutes later, you say the exact same thing. And then people in the comments be like, I completely 1 million percent agree with Derek. And I'm like, are you freaking serious?
4: So I love (laughs) you guys. So I love you guys. Yeah. No. So she does. She does come off authentic. But there are definitely other individuals where, you know, you know what happened and they do at points make you go, hmm, that was pretty good. But it does sound pretty believable based on everything else she said, if we we're to take it all at face value, cause Michael's no longer here. I could definitely see how based on the conditions that he's dealing with, as far as his own male issues, how he could fly off the handle at something as so trivial as tampons being on a counter. Like I could see how the person that she's been portraying him to be could be affected by that. But that's the key phrase there portraying him to be. She's building a case as to why she did this. And, and it could be all truthful, but it would still contribute to the reasons why at some point she felt the need to defend herself with lethal force. So just something to consider as we're going through it. Um, very compelling stuff, but we do have to look at it for what it is.
0: Yeah. And for the record, the question that's going- for what
4: it could be, or what it could be, I guess.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say. For the record, the question during the trial is going to be did she kill him? Like, there's no question, right, that that she stabbed him. And there, there's there's going to be some question about that early on. And we're going to talk about that in the investigation portion. And that's going to kind of lead people to believe that maybe she's not being completely 100 percent honest because she's not being truthful initially about what happened. But the question that's that's going to try to be answered is, did she do this from self-defense? Did she kill him because she thought if she didn't, he was going to kill her? Or was this more premeditated was this more of a kind of thing where she attacked him out of anger, and that's what the jury is going to have to decide at the end of the day? And in fact, they already have decided, but I am not going to tell you, Derek, what they did decide. And don't
4: look it up. Okay, I will not.
0: So after this, Danielle and Michael they moved on from it in a way where she says, "You know, we moved on. We continue to live in the same home. They continue to raise their children together." But she was becoming more concerned as his behavior. Did not seem to be getting better, but worse. He was drinking more. He was putting his hands on her more. Their arguments seemed to continue to move along in a cyclical manner where they would always escalate to violence. And she herself began to drink quite a lot of alcohol in order to cope. One day, Danielle was in the basement going through some boxes that had not been unpacked after their move to uh, Indiana. When a friend of Michael's came over, now Danielle would normally go up and say hello, but she was busy with the boxes. She was also drinking, so she stayed downstairs. When she went upstairs later, Michael asked her why she hadn't come up to say hello, and then he also pointed out that she had, you know, consumed almost an entire bottle of wine, to which she responded, quote, Oh, there isn't room for two alcoholics in the house, end quote. She claims that uh, Michael grabbed her. He told her that no wife of his was going to be rude to company or be an alcoholic. He pushed her roughly into a wall. And once again, during the trial, Danielle was asked, you know, why didn't you leave after the physical violence towards you continued to escalate and like cycle back? And she said, you know, she was still young at this point. She still loved Michael. They had children together who were young and she felt that if they could just get past this rough spot in their lives and their marriage, they would be okay. Danielle began doing things for herself and she was pursuing things that she was interested in, like photography, in order to distract herself from how bad things were in her marriage. Then in 2014, Michael took a job as the Director of External Affairs in Partnership Relations for the DeVos Sports Management Program at the University of Central Florida, Michael would be taking a slight pay cut when he began working for the university, but according to his colleagues, he had decided to make this move for his children because he felt that the constant moving around from place to place wasn't good for them. So he kind of wanted to settle in one area and uh, take a job in academia where he wouldn't be sort of transferred around from city to city, depending on what sports team he worked for. Now, uh, one of his duties at UCF was to help graduating students find jobs after college, And according to Richard Lapchick, who was a colleague of Michael's and who wrote an article for Michael after his death um, on UCF.edu, quote, When Mike saw the position at the University of Central Florida, he told me he felt a need to give back and help the next generation create their paths to success. He especially liked the program's emphasis on both business and service to the community. He was all-in when we took students to post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans each August to rebuild homes in our Hope for Stanley program. He mentored the students as they organized the 4.9K Rainbow Community Run on the first and second anniversaries of the Pulse nightclub shooting. It benefited the One Pulse Foundation and this year raised nearly $100,000. And according to everyone who knew him, friends and co-workers alike, Michael Redlick was also an amazing and attentive father. His son Sawyer was in all sorts of sports, and Mike coached his teams whenever he could, and he would speak proudly about Sawyer's stats to anyone who would listen. And Mike took his daughter Jaden one year to New Orleans on the Hope for Stanley trip, and they worked shoulder to shoulder as they rebuilt a home together. Jaden, who was just 15 years old when her father died, would later testify in court, saying, quote, My dad and I were very close. We practically did everything together. He took me out on daddy-daughter dates all the time. We were very close. I told him everything. End quote. So I put this in here because I kind of wanted to illustrate that what we're hearing about Mike in the most part of this video, it's coming from Danielle, and, and it's not super positive, right? It's not um, it's not painting him in the best light. But if you talk to everyone else who knew him, including his children, um, he was awesome. He, you know, had a ton of students who, you know, spoke out after his death, hundreds of students saying that he had made such a positive impact on them. He was very involved in giving back to the community. And I don't know what that says. I don't know, in this case, whether it says you can be two things at once. You can be a horrible monster to one person and be, you know, a hero to everyone else in your life. Or if it says maybe the way Danielle was painting him wasn't 100% accurate. What do you think?
4: I think you can be both. I I know firsthand uh, through personal experiences, uh, and I'll leave it at that as far as how personal, uh, but also through my time as a police officer, where I would see certain individuals day to day, coaching teams, you know, at the basketball tournaments, all these different events, you know, political events. And then all of a sudden, four o'clock in the morning, I'm getting a call for a drunken disorderly that led to an assault. And hear the address and it sounds familiar. And then I get there and I realize it's the same guy I saw six hours earlier when he only had one beer in his system. So I, I definitely think you can be both. Uh, but I also think, which is where you were going with it, that for the most part, we've only heard from the individual who killed Michael and and not necessarily from others who wouldn't have an incentive to paint him in a certain light. So there's value there. There's absolutely value there, especially when you're talking about his children, because they were living in the household with Danielle and Michael. So they would have firsthand knowledge uh, of their relationship, maybe not everything, but some things. And I do think that's very important.
0: It seemed like the kids had a lot of knowledge about what was going on. And we're going to talk about that um, more in depth in the next part of uh, this, the next video. But for the record, just to kind of piggyback off of what Michael's daughter, Jaden, said about their relationship she did not have the best things to say about her relationship with her mother. She found her mother to be toxic, manipulative, and she felt that her mother was the reason that her parents were arguing and were having issues. Now, once again, this is one person's perspective. This is a child. You're always going to have a child that favors one parent over the other, and uh, you're always going to have, you know, different outlooks. And there there are instances, I know in my own Um, parents' relationship where, you know, I thought my dad was like an angel because my mom never spoke badly about him. But um, he had no problem, you know, kind of telling me what she was up to. So it's kind of also a perspective issue. And, uh, you know, you just don't know with the kids. She she could just have been closer to her father and not really have gotten a, a big understanding. And we don't know. Behind the scenes, Michael could have been like, oh, your mother's doing this. Your mother's doing this. And Danielle, in order to shield the kids, may not have Ben is open with them so we just don't know um, it's very tough and I'm trying very hard to be fair in this case because it is something that you need to be unbiased on going in and you know unfortunately I have experience with with being in a in um, abusive relationship so I don't want people to think that I'm automatically just going to take the side of the the person Danielle in this case who claims to be a victim of domestic violence because I think that you know, it could be both. She could be a, dom- a domestic violence uh, abuse victim, but also still be a murderer, you know, because if you're not facing... Point. Right. Like, you can't just kill the person who's abusing you unless you're in a position where your life is at stake, right? I'm pretty sure that's the self-defense rules.
4: State to state, it's all different. Um, but for the most part, yes, if you have an opportunity to retreat or remove yourself from the situation... Um, you are legally required to do so. You have to prove that there was no opportunity for you to leave and that based on the situation you were in, as you just said, you felt your your life was in danger. Um, I don't know the, the specifics. I think certain states where you have like a, you know, certain states have a standard ground law where, you know, I think Florida is one of them. We've seen some cases where they absolutely could have fled the area. They're outside in a public place and They shoot and kill someone and they get off on it, which I don't agree with, by the way. Um, So every state is different, but it is going to be interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up to see the specifics of this case as far as the actual incident um, and really break that down to see, you know, even though let's just assume for the sake of this conversation, everything she said up to this point is true. It still doesn't justify a murder if you had an opportunity to remove yourself from the situation, even in that immediate moment. Uh, so that's that's gonna be that's really gonna be fascinating. I, I can't I don't know if we'll get to that tonight. Um, but that is something that I, I think a lot of people in the comments are gonna be weighing in. I don't I don't think we're gonna have this across the board agreement from everyone, which is which is good. I think it's good.
0: No, we're definitely not. It's not one of those like all pedophiles no. should should be in prison for yes. life conversations. You know, this is definitely I think a more controversial. Which congrats
4: to us by the way. <laughs> we seen the co- I seen the comments. I know you did congrats to the Crime Weekly fam. Cuz you know what? I think 95% of the people agreed that, you know, child molesters shouldn't get a second chance. So congrats to you guys, everyone out there. Um I was very surprised. I thought there'd be more, you know, pushback.
0: Yeah. I th- I did too because I've seen pushback out there. On it, and you know, yeah. like it seems that that today's <laughs> today's society has a way of making like everything seem controversial. So you're like, I didn't think this was going to be a hot take, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, no, um... I,
4: you know, I love it. Gives me faith in the world that the most people out there agree that if you violate a, a child or, or even a woman for that adult, where you do something of that extreme extent, yeah, that's it for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're done. I'm not saying they got to kill you, but. You're not you're not getting another opportunity to do again. That's it. So congrats, everyone. I'm glad we uh, you know, we had some cohesiveness in the comments. It was great. We
0: made a breakthrough.
4: <laughs> I won't get used to it, but you know no, it was there.
0: Don't, don't get used to it. It's probably gonna now, end right. now. This week now.
4: we'll be right back to it. <laughs> yep. Yep.
0: Well, okay. So uh they're in Florida now, right? Michael, Danielle, and their kids, they rented a house in the winter park area of Florida. Um, For about a year before they purchased their home at 1231 Temple Drive, also in Winter Park. And this is located just three miles from Orlando. Winter Park, according to their website, is known for its old world charm. Elegant homes, quaint bricked streets, extensive tree canopy, first-class shopping and dining experiences, and world-class museums. And really what all of that should say is it's expensive AF, man. You will pay for all of these things. So their house um the house that they bought 1231 temple drive it's like a mediterranean style 3500 square foot home with four bedrooms a covered porch and pool and all the desired amenities of modern living including like deep you know whirlpool hot tubs and stuff in the bathrooms i'm going to have john put pictures of the house in here while we're talking about it and from the floor plan which is going to become important next episode when we talk about when this actually happened Almost all of the bedrooms and a living space are on the first floor. So it's this really like massive sprawling sort of house and then everything's on um, the first floor. But there is a like bonus loft space on the upper floor. And it kind of seemed like, at least if we are believing Danielle and what she's saying, she would sometimes use this as a place to retreat when Michael would become violent and she'd kind of like sleep up there and things like that. So Winter Park, in general, it's a beautiful place to live and raise kids. The weather, it's sunny all the time. Disney World, it's just around the corner. Michael was doing something where he could not only make a decent living, but also he could feel good about what he was doing. And both Danielle and Michael were hopeful that this could be a fresh start in a way for them. Danielle was not working when they moved to Florida. She had signed up to go back to school full time, and she was busy getting the kids set up in their new neighborhood and with their own schools. But you know what they say, you cannot run away from your problems, they just follow you wherever you go. And the intimacy did not improve in Danielle and Michael's marriage, neither did Michael's drinking, and by now, Danielle had developed quite the drinking problem herself, which is self-proclaimed. She admits this, she says it. Michael's health issues did seem to be getting better, but it was almost as if he was sort of physically improving, but his behavior was becoming more aggressive.
5: He was gaining growing, he was gaining some hair back and some muscle mass, and he was actually looking better than he had in a long time. Um, but I also noticed some extremely aggressive behaviors. Um, Towards yourself? Yes.
3: If you can expand on that, what are you
5: seeing? Um he was short tempered um I noticed uh like physical things like he would his he'd get red veins kind of popping out of his neck, and he would look real flustered a lot and anxious, and um some of that would translate into aggression
3: yeah, towards yourself yes, can you give the jury an example of how the aggression would towards yourself would play out now that we're in florida
5: yes, um more of the same, just um Um, Just sexually aggressive, always um, manhandling, approaching me in in ways like that. Um, He was still drinking heavily, and I know that at one point we started sleeping separately because of this. Um, And he was coming into the room at night drunk and basically attacking me. He was taking my pants off, and he um, was—and this was— becoming like a daily thing and i don't know if he was trying to work something out with him in, in his own mind but it wasn't working for me and when i refused he would he he slap me or he'd get hostile with me and then the next day he'd apologize
3: this happened once or more than once
5: it happened several times
3: Seven. sorry
5: to the point where i asked i i said i asked him to move out and i said this isn't going to work the kids were noticing were getting older they were noticing the fighting and hearing things
0: at night. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back to discuss. We are back. So um when I was listening to this part of the trial, obviously now I'm Googling, does testosterone replacement therapy make you aggressive? And you know it, it ended up being like kind of not, not equal across the board. And if you guys have some experience with this in the comment section, let us know but um it seemed like some people found that they did get more aggressive um i mean it's testosterone after all um and some people said no it was a very good experience they felt euphoric they felt young again i'm not sure it probably is it's a hormone so it's one of those things where it's like how is it gonna affect your body based on like your chemical makeup who knows But maybe Michael was one of the people who it kind of made more aggressive. And I'm just I'm not sure if that was a factor.
4: It absolutely happens. I can tell you firsthand again, played uh, college baseball and new individuals, not only uh, in that realm, but also just uh, through my younger days that were taking testosterone to increase performance. And one of the side effects was this aggressiveness. We would see them, you know, they would always be the guy that you'd have to worry about when we went to the bar. Because if someone even looked at them the wrong way, they were trying to fight them. And it was this was definitely something that was a factor in what they were doing because before they started taking steroids or whatever, they didn't act like that. So it was very easy to make the correlation to whatever they were taking and the behavior they were now displaying. So this right here, I can tell you firsthand is absolutely in some people a side effect to taking uh, something that has extra testosterone in it. Uh, and that maybe that you don't need that level that you're taking.
0: And I mean, then you have a lot of alcohol, right? That's being kind of thrown in the mix. Like this could be a bad
4: combination, Yeah,
0: lethal cocktail there because alcohol is going to decrease your inhibitions. I think that it 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 makes aggressive people feel more aggressive or act more aggressive. Either way, you you definitely see that happen all the time. So it uh, could have been a factor.
4: I, I, I do like that for the first time. She's bringing in another person to the equation, and that's the children, where everything at this point has kind of been firsthand perspective, where other than a doctor very early on, there's been nothing to really corroborate what she said as far as what was taking place between her and Michael. But now she's creating this narrative where he was abusing her at night. There were uh, an increase in 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 the the fighting that was going on. And if you're lying, the last thing you want to do is bring in outside parties that can disagree with you or disprove what you're saying, right? If they don't, if they're not on board with whatever narrative you're trying to paint. So the fact that she's bringing other people in to this story now, uh, does give it some more validity if they're saying the same things, because if she's lying, she's creating a risk where they could actually disprove what she's saying and it would hurt her in the long run. So interesting that she's choosing to do that on the surface. It does give more credibility to what she's saying, because now she's telling you the story and saying, hey, if you don't believe me, ask the kids. And that is compelling for a jury.
0: Oh, and her sister Melanie, um, when I forget where exactly, I think it was when they were in Memphis, but her sister Melanie, remember, that was the one who you know she had moved in to help with. She also um, testified that she had walked in one day and she heard yelling coming from the master bedroom and she walked in and Michael had Um, Danielle pinned against the wall and and they were having some sort of like physical altercation. So there's definitely people who like will, you know, support what she's saying that the 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 arguments did get physical, that there was physical violence between the two. Um, But who was the aggressor? Was it physically violent on on both parts? Because I am somebody who believes that, you know, whether you're a woman or a man, you shouldn't be laying your hands on your partner. Ever. It's not it's not good. It's not gonna ever defeat. And like obviously, yes, you have to protect yourself, but don't take part in this thing and just have it like cycle out of control because you can't you can't be a part of that. Um so we don't really know where the situation was. And she admits, you know, to oftentimes hitting him back, things like that. Uh, so and and the kids did say like when they fought, it was bad. Like they could hear it. They said they had a toxic relationship, they both went at each other. So it just doesn't seem like um, a super good situation all around. Who was the, the main aggressor? Was it him? Most likely, if we believe her. Yeah, it was most likely him. And, and you know, there was times when she did fight back.
4: Yeah, I agree with everything you said. The fact that there's other people involved here, it's still great because now you can have conflicting stories if there's some premeditation where they're trying. You know, whenever you put people on a stand, stress comes into it and usually the truth comes out. Uh, And it's harder to keep your story straight. So always love when there's multiple angles, multiple stories, multiple witnesses, Um, because if you're having them all say the same thing um, from their own perspectives, there usually is some truth to it. But at minimum, what I take away from this just right now is that this, this picture of Michael, that he's this great guy and all these things from the outside could absolutely be true. And yet we know for certain that there were things going on within the home that weren't Necessarily the best, and that's directly from the children. So that is something that's important to to consider when evaluating Michael Redlick as a person as well. We do know that there were things going on at home that weren't as, maybe not as good as he was painting to others on the outside.
0: Absolutely, and you know Michael Redlick did end up moving out of the family home for the first time in 2016, and I say the first time because he would move out again later. Um, at this time, he was still paying the bills, and Danielle was still going to school full time and taking care of the kids. And although Michael was staying at different places during this time, he would still sort of come and go as he pleased from their house. And even sometimes, you know, Danielle would make food for him. And there were still arguments between them that would turn violent. One time, Danielle had to go to the ER after suffering a mild concussion from Michael throwing her into a dresser. But she never told the doctors or anyone what was happening because she didn't want Michael to get into trouble. And one day after getting into a fight at a park, michael followed her home and attempted to hit her with his car he was in his car and
3: where are you guys are, are you at your own home
0: yes i'm sorry we're at our at our own home
3: okay and um, what happens
5: um i've got the garage door up and i'm standing at the garage opening and he's in his car and um he's just staring at me and he's got that look again this like dead eye look where point of no return type thing and he
3: is this the same look that you had described from the incident in indiana yes is this a look that you would later see yes. in January of 2019? Yes. Tell me more about the look and what you're experiencing as he has it and what it looks just from your opinion, what you can see happening to him.
5: Um, it's just like extreme rage and like a, I just describe it as a dead eye. He just locks in on me and it, it doesn't look like he's, you know, it's like a point of no return, like a snap kind of thing.
3: Are you able to talk to him when this is happening? No. Is this something that would go on for an extended period of time?
5: Extended period of time meaning?
3: Um, in this specific instance. So I don't mean over years, I mean in the event when it's happening. How long is this, is this look that he's got going on?
5: Um, I wouldn't say it's terribly long. Um, it's, not short. it's not short, but it's enough to do some damage.
3: So what happens with the car that you were just explaining?
5: Well, he just accelerated and I'm I'm seeing him and I'm looking at his face and I can't believe that he's driving the car toward me and he's going really fast and there's no sign of him stopping. And he didn't stop. And I jumped into the bushes to avoid it.
0: So Danielle did go to the Winter Park Police Department to report this incident. Um, I believe it was on October 3rd, 2016. But when the law enforcement official tried to obtain the necessary information from Danielle that was needed to fill out a report, She refused to provide a sworn statement. She got upset, and she abruptly left the building. Later, it would be said in court that the police had told her they would need to speak to Michael, and she didn't want to get him into trouble. It seemed that after some time of Michael living outside the home, he and Danielle reconnected, and he moved back in. But then, in January of 2018, Danielle found out that her husband had been communicating with another woman behind her back you know, he's got his testosterone now, his hair is growing back, his muscle mass coming back, he's feeling himself. Now he can pick up women outside of the marriage. And apparently Michael and this other woman had gone out on like a few dates. They seemed to really be liking each other. At least Danielle felt that way from what she saw in their correspondence. And Danielle claims that when they were separated, she and Michael had both agreed to seek therapy And sort of work on their problems separately, as well as attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. But while this was happening, Michael had like some warnings for her about the predatory men who might try to flirt with her during these meetings. So
5: he's telling me when I'm going to my Al-Anon meetings to watch out because guys will be hitting on you a lot. And he keeps telling me this. And so it makes me wonder. So I start to wonder, well, what's he doing at the meetings? And so I... I looked in his uh, emails, and sure enough, I found some conversations between the two of them.
3: When you see this, how do you react? What is your reaction, your emotional reaction to seeing this?
5: Well, this would be the first sign of infidelity in, I guess, 14 years at that point. So I was, and we had been through so much, and I just, of course, I was hurt and betrayed at that point because we were still living together and surprised.
3: Did you confront Michael about it? Yes. How does that go?
5: He says it's it's nothing um, like, and, you know, I don't have to it's not something I should worry about. Um, but of course, we argue about it.
3: When you hear that response, how does that make you feel?
5: Um, I felt like he was downplaying it, and he was sort of dismissing it and um, not being completely honest.
0: Because I don't, he didn't know how much I knew either.
4: There you go. There's your other woman. Took a little bit longer years wise, but we got around to it.
0: And I also will say like, just from my experience and I'm not making a generalization, but from my experience, when a man is feeling not so great about himself and he's expressing that to his wife in ways like, oh, I'm afraid you're going to leave me. Oh, like I'm super like self-conscious. But he never says it's that he's self-conscious. He's just saying like he's afraid you're gonna leave him and he's always worried about what you're doing. He's usually like doing something on the side because this is his way of like boosting his self-esteem and like solidifying his ego by being able to to confirm to himself that he's still attracted or attractive to other women.
4: Yeah. And she seems like uh, she's being somewhat transparent about it where you know, she confronted him and she had a little bit of a smile at the end of that clip too, where she's like, oh, he didn't know how much I knew. Yeah, Almost like
0: that threw me too.
4: <laughs> she liked having the upper edge of him. I don't know if you caught that at the end there. Yes, it threw like me. She had to add that in there and, you know, yeah, but he didn't know how much I knew. Yeah,
0: she doesn't elaborate, right? It's like, well, what, what right. else did you know? Like she doesn't go on to say how much she knew, but I'm sure it's one of those things and, you know, I don't know if men do it, but I know I definitely do it. I do it with my kids too, where it's like. I know something, I know I know, I know a little bit, but like I'm not gonna tell you what I know. I'm gonna see if you tell me because that's gonna show me whether or not like you're gonna be honest and come clean or whether this is like a bigger thing and you're just gonna keep lying, you know? Um Right Yeah. I mean, I do it with my kids. I don't know if I'd do it with my husband. So Danielle actually claims that she went to an Al-Anon meeting and like met this other woman and the woman like approached her and confirmed that the relationship was happening. Um, I'm not sure if it maybe went down exactly like that. I'm sure Danielle may have sought out this specific Al-Anon meeting that she knew the woman was going to be at. And maybe it was kind of like she approached the other woman. But either way, she got confirmation from this other woman. And Danielle claims that she told Michael, listen, if you want to see her, like, I can't stop you. But I also can't have you doing it while you're living, like, with me in our family home. And Michael claimed it was over, but two months later, she discovered that Michael and this woman were still in communication, and she asked him to move out. And this was a request he did not push back against. According to Danielle, Michael seemed excited about the prospect of living separately from her once again and possibly pursuing a relationship with this other woman, and this made her feel hurt and betrayed, so she filed for divorce in March of 2018. That divorce would never be finalized, however, as Michael Redlick did his best to dodge the process server. And on one day in April, he came over to the house to talk with Danielle to tell her that he loved her and didn't want to be divorced. Play clip.
5: Um, he just looked at me and he said, he said, I love my wife. And he said he didn't want to be with another woman. And um, the way he said it just uh, softened me. And so we were um, affectionate and we um we lay down together that day and ironically the the um someone knocked at the door and I looked the window and I said, I think it's the um the divorce papers and he just looked at me and he said please don't and so I sent her away. The process server. She knew he was there, she saw his car and
4: You can hear it. You can uh, it sounds genuine to me. There's definitely some hurt there and I think some regret because she's probably saying to herself, if I would have just went through with that and said, hey, he's right here, have him sign it. That may have been the end of it and she wouldn't be
0: on trial for murder. And he wouldn't be dead, right?
4: And he wouldn't be dead, <laughs> right. exactly.
0: I agree. Um, once again, I'm watching the the live chat with this trial and there's a lot of people like, oh, she's faking it. Like, no, I watched this entire trial. I heard this woman talk for hours and hours and um, the, she she stays pretty stoic. And, and level, even um, monotone her voice at, at most points. I don't know if you've noticed that.
4: Right. Even Kale the whole way. Even on some of the more controversial stuff. She hasn't broke any, any really showed any side of emotion. She's very, very, very monotone about everything.
0: Very much in control of her emotion. And and there, when she says, he said he loved his wife, she, she wavered a little bit. And then when she talks about the process server, she definitely showed, I think, genuine emotion there. And, and like you said, yeah, regret. And um, she's probably remembering this—this this, what she thought was a one true and genuine moment that they had together, um, probably one of the the last ones that they had together. So, yeah, I think she definitely feels regret not only for not going through with it, and this is hindsight. Hindsight's very, I guess, uh, insightful, but not super valuable at the time because what's done is done. But. She she most likely has uh, regret that he is no longer alive because at the end of the day I think she very much loves her children and that's their father so this is a very complicated situation.
4: Well, it goes back to what I said very early on in this episode about those forks in the road and the decisions we make. They don't always result in death, but for each individual out there, they're gonna they're gonna focus on a certain event and the way they were feeling in that moment and how close they were to maybe going a different route. But in that moment where, as she said, he softened her, even though she was really secure with her decision, he, he, he got to her and she changed her mind and that's her fork in the road. That's the moment where she feels like I could have, I could have made a difference here if I just had chosen the opposite of what I chose. And for every person, it's different. Some people, it may have been earlier, may have been the moment where he tried to hit her with a car, allegedly, you know, but for her, this is the defining moment where she goes back to and she replays saying, I was so close to just opening that door and just saying, here he is, sign the paperwork. No, you've done it to me enough. I won't do it again. And it could be a completely different situation. So for her, that was kind of the breaking point where she felt like she really had an opportunity to get out of the situation. She didn't, now she's where she is. So I think there's a lot of emotions that she's feeling, not just not just the loss of her children's father, but also the predicament she's in now, because at that point when she's saying it, She could still lose her freedom. You know, if she's telling the truth, she could have defended herself and yet still end up in prison for the rest of her life. So it's I'm sure I can't imagine the feelings that she's having in that moment where she's thinking about that day on the couch with him where all of this could have been avoided maybe, maybe if she had chosen just to have him sign the papers.
0: Yeah, and it's shitty what he did, you know, just kind of weaseling himself back in, leaving when he wanted, weaseling himself back in, emotionally manipulating her like You know, it's hard enough already without the mind games, but, you know, this happened, and by the next month, Michael and Danielle were back together trying to make it work, going on dates and rekindling what they had lost, and Danielle claimed that she felt he really meant it this time, that he loved her and he wanted to do whatever it took to be in a committed marriage with her. But then, one day, Danielle picked up a book that Michael had left on the house when he moved out.
5: It was an Alec Baldwin autobiography, and I'm a fan, so I just opened it, and a piece of paper fell out.
3: Was there something in the paper that, was, that gave a reaction to you? Yes. What was the reaction that you have upon
5: seeing it? Um, I was disappointed and shocked. Okay.
3: And what's causing that?
5: The content of it. Which is? Uh, it was written by him. Um, it was a speech of some sort, is what I gathered. And it was um, saying that he was newly divorced and single, and he hadn't been inside these walls in four years. Um, and then he went on to say some things about his. Uh, you should be so lucky when you ruin a good woman that god will give you another one and
3: how do you feel at this point after after reviewing that what's your mindset
5: I'm shook up by it because I was surprised that he was saying this when we were clearly trying to get on better and so what
3: you're seeing there matching the interactions that you're having with your husband No. after observing that after having this experience did you speak with Michael about it? Did you confront him about what you had found?
5: Yes,
0: I asked him about it.
3: And is that what leads to this email exchange?
0: Yes. So the email that, that was referred to at the end of that clip is one that Danielle wrote to Michael on May 14th, 2018 at 1.19 p.m. And I'm going to read it to you, even though it's long, because this email, it does a lot of things. First, it gives us some insight into what was happening between Michael and Danielle at this time, at least what Danielle feels was happening between them. Like I said, you know, when you see someone testifying in court, you know they've been prepped by their lawyers and they have, you know, the lawyers on the other side objecting to certain things. Um, In this case, it was constant, you know, she'd say, Michael would say this, and they'd say, objection, you know, secondhand speculation, things like that. And she just could never really um, get it out. So there's sometimes a bit rehearsed and also restrained. But in this email, Danielle's able to verbalize all that she is feeling without being coached or objected to. Additionally, the prosecution in her trial felt this email was relevant due to several key phrases and words Danielle used over and over again. Additionally, there are some lines or words that have been blacked out or redacted. And at that point uh, in the email, I will simply say redacted. So the email reads, quote, Taking the time to write this morning because things need to be addressed. Just going to cut to the chase. If I don't, then my emotions get let out in other ways that don't always serve me, anyone, well. Clearly, yesterday is a good example on the beach. By the way, I think it's funny how you chose to take the morally superior stance by telling me I'm not a Christian because I had a sharp tongue with you regarding your totally immoral, shady actions that put truly loving, loyal, and well-intended, caring people, namely your wife and kids, in a state of pain and emotional turmoil. Not once, Not twice, but continually and relentlessly. I know I'm bitter at times, I admit. And no, it's not pretty. And I do need to get a grip, as you put it. But you have a lot of nerve as well. Although my words may be cutting, they are only sounds. A dull knife compared to the sharp, disloyal, deceiving, phony, and never-ending selfish knife you continue to twist in my back, as if it's a sport at this point. Of course someone would be messed up, traumatized, and may act out. I mean, seriously, the latest discovery and what continues to unfold as the horror story of the century, you know that letter slash speech slash page of thoughts slash garbage, whatever you want to call it, is about as hurtful as it can get in a marriage, ending or not. Not to mention it shows what a dishonest, unscrupulous person you are. Not sure if you even realize that, and blaming it on someone else is sad. In that letter, you are as far from Christ as the devil and your lies about it all are too. As if the doubt on top of it for me wasn't great enough already, how could I ever be at ease after that? I never recovered from the David's sessions, honestly, and certainly you will never help to reverse or move any mountains for me. I know that for sure. I've never met anyone who convinces themselves over and over that their immoral, conniving actions are not just that but are somehow justifiable and reasonable, no matter their cost or harm to others. I noticed whenever I confront or attempt to process, work through the cuts your knives wound me with, you have a hard time. Trouble admitting the truth. Trouble admitting the true nature of just how sharp and dangerous their edges are. They are nonetheless weapons, and you are always claiming the right to hurt me with them. When I ask you about the hurts you put me through, I hate the answers you give me. I mean— How do you love a man who will, redacted, because you are acting in agony over the aftermath of his cutting, hurtful actions to begin with? How do you love someone who watches you suffer, go without, fade into, redacted, struggle to finish school with no support, not financial, to try and better herself for autonomy and a chance to reclaim the life she always wanted to live, someone who spites your wishes for respect because they are insecure and angry that you want to be happy? Ugh. That being said, I don't want to spew, rant, or hurt anymore. That's the last time, and the worst of it is in this letter. Actually, I'm writing this to free myself from the bondage I lived in for almost a decade. Not all your fault. But I have been so emotionally beat up, my heart assaulted over and over in ways I never imagined possible, from someone you love or spent so much time with, invested so much with, had children with. My loyalty of all these years has really been the chains that bind me. My own fault. You didn't put them there. My pain got so deep that I did not know how to comfortably live anymore hence the self-destructive behaviors and unraveling of spirit. Neglecting myself and even my kids, because when you neglect yourself, you essentially neglect them, and that was the action I took to mask my longing need to truly be held, seen, regarded, loved. To truly live, that would be to feel that. I'm not sure I ever really felt it. I know I only felt the longing and lived in paranoia that I would perhaps never feel what I so deeply desired, ached for. I turned away what I deemed as phony attempts to love me, It didn't feel right so i rejected it i went on sacrificing my own happiness and ended up jeopardizing my children's as well i blame you but really i am just as at fault i did not care and i did not act with self-love i was wrong i drank i raged i became the ugly pain in my heart on the outside i changed and witnessed a darkness in me that i never knew was there or could be a part of me my pain made me dark ugly and shameful but really I don't know how to be happy loving someone who does not represent the things I love or hold sacred. That just sets the stage for pain and or struggle slash conflict as it has. I just want to be happy now. I made up my mind that this is what I need to commit to. Not a person or a marriage, but my own true happiness. What a concept. I know. I think some of us have this subconscious belief deep down that we don't deserve to be happy or that we don't get to be happy until we have suffered and or bled to death first. Well, I think I might be one of those people. And as illogical as the previous statement is, I have suffered, even bled to death, I'd say. And uh, bled to death here is underlined by her in the letter. And so any subconscious prerequisite to happiness are technically fulfilled. You wrote words that your spouse, lover, does not have the capacity to be happy with anyone, whether that was something you believe, relate to, or just part of the act for your audience. I know I can be happy, I just haven't committed to it, and I realize you do not hold the key, as I may have mistakenly given you the permission to hold for so many years. In fact, It is only I who can hold that key and only I who can unlock the door to my own unhappiness. I know what makes me happy and I shouldn't let you or anyone rewrite, deny, or offer me anything less, let alone claim that I am not capable. I was hopeful, sweet, full of life and love when I met you. I came with that and I am leaving with that. Whether you see it or not doesn't matter anymore." My face may be dirty, but all I have to do is wash away the grit, put a little TLC back into it, and it will shine as clean as it did the day I met you. It's called taking care and deciding to really tend to my happiness. No more sacrifice, suffering, begging, pleading, crying, reducing, wasting away, or wondering what kind of scary pain lurks around the corner next. Anyway, we have to figure out some stuff. I know it's all messy. Money, my issues, our issues, kids. Let's just say beach houses and traveling the world aren't exactly in the immediate future. I'm embarrassed, ashamed, and sick about everything, but I have to keep trying, and most of all, somehow make it up to the kids." Redeem myself, as you refer to as well. By the way, for the record, I really wanted the Romeo and Juliet story. I wanted a soulmate to trust, melt into, be there for, even die for if it came down to it, to show the depth of my love and hopefully vice versa. Or just the one person who had your back and you had theirs no matter what, no matter anything. I wanted to be special and I wanted to treat someone special even when the walls came down. I wanted to know that nothing shakes the foundation or otherwise. It's the kind of love I wanted our kids to see so that they could find it for themselves. Well, I guess you can't take away a person's faith in those things, even if they never come close to them, or it's just a fairy tale. At least they have something to believe in. I don't believe you were ever fully game. You talked like you were, but your so-called love actions never really felt much more than surface or a feed-the-need type deal and still do to this day. I knew when you pulled your arm away the first time I tried to make it a special love, and I knew it the day I married you. I think you limited me to serve and protect yourself. You are deathly afraid of being vulnerable and or selfless. You are definitely nobody's victim, and I have to say, good for you. But when you protect yourself so much, to the point you miss the opportunity to experience something completely real, you lose anyway. And sadly, so does the other person. I wish I could have had that. I really do. And don't say we can because all that has happened has canceled that potential, and I would always wonder what is in your head because I discovered so many shocking things that you hid. I see you, as always, self-serving, and you can't really trust that. Trust is the biggest part of all of this. Love is trust. I hope we pull out a better future for our kids. I hope we get to or become the right people for them independent of the failed marriage. Help me help them, please. I'm clearly not perfect and may even be a crappier person than I ever thought I had the potential to be, but damn, I love with great depth, too. As far as that stuff you wrote, we both know how crushing it is, so I won't ask you about it anymore, and I would appreciate it if you wouldn't justify explain it anymore. you do me no favors with your answers, maybe even lies, unless you could literally write across the sky and shout to the world how wrong you have been, redacted, hurting and betraying me with the Nicole antics, not standing up for me and putting another woman you barely know before me, tearing me down as a mother to the kids, spiting me with your meetings, outright physical and emotional abandonment. Not supporting me in difficult times and literally degrading my name and almost leaving me to rot and hurt and fight my way back to a safe place. And let's not forget, not taking care of my needs as a human. Yep, that's a lot, I know. Most of that you deny, justify, or excuse. Plus, it isn't physically possible to write that in the sky or shout it out for all to hear, including Nicole. I'm realistic. And if you really do have feelings for that woman, I guess now is the time, eh? I'm still hurt and it cuts, but I have the ability to move on too. Who knows from here? I guess we need to get it together as best we can. End quote. Wow,
4: uh, really great writer, huh? Yeah, she's good. Obviously, she took—I'm so, sure—a lot of time to write that. But even from the trial footage, you can tell she's very smart, very articulate. Like she, 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 she knows how to speak uh, very well, and you can see it in this letter. So what do I take away from it? Well, considering why we're here, this does not sound like someone who's setting up a murder. This doesn't sound pre like a premeditation letter where you would try to kind of create a narrative that can later be looked at by the police or at trial to protect yourself because really there's not much mention of the physical abuse. I didn't think there was any. Any at all. I mean, r- little hints here and there, like as far as like the bleeding and stuff like that, but overall very subliminal and like, If you wanted to be overt and make sure that someone at a later date, specifically an investigator, would see this and go, oh, yeah, so you can see right here, here's the proof. She didn't really go there. This was more emotionally based. And it was more so her freeing herself, as she said, where she just wanted to be left alone. She just wanted him to go. She just wanted to move on with her life. She just wanted to start to find herself and find respect for what she wanted to do with her life as far as. Maybe find someone else, but at first find herself and 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 love herself. And it really didn't sound like she was painting a picture as if she was afraid of him. You know, anything you would expect to see if this was something where there was an underlying, you know, reason for doing it. It's more so like, hey, listen, I want you to go be happy. I want to be happy. Let's work together so that we can do this in an amicable fashion for the children. That was kind of my takeaway on it. Nothing really in there suggested that, this could be interpreted as her setting up for what's going to happen later. That's not that's not my takeaway from it.
0: Yeah, these are the words of a woman who's thought about this a lot, right? And not just hours or days, but years. Like, these are the things she's always wanted to say. These are the things she's organized in her mind. After you have a fight, you're thinking about all the things you would say if the other person would be receptive to it. And, you know, they're not. And it's going to just cause another fight. So... You just kind of keep them all in storage in your brain and then she spills it out. This is a woman who clearly has some love for him still and is very, very hurt. And she's referring to his speech and what he's saying that his wife doesn't have the capacity to be happy with anybody. And she is referring to the little piece of paper she found in the Alec Baldwin biography, which of all things, Alec Baldwin, of course, of course, he has to come in here. But it, I believe it was a speech that uh, Michael was was going to give at Al-Anon because, you know, you get up and you speak and, and it, it looked like that was what it was. And in this letter, which um, I can't find a full copy, but there's constant references to it throughout the trial. He is speaks about her in a very negative way and and basically is denigrating to her. And this is what she read that kind of, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back and caused her to finally write this email, put it all out there and say, we're done. This email is actually used in trial by the prosecution, not the defense. And I think it's a little bit of a reach. However, when we go into next episode and we talk about the the actual crime scene and what she did, and, you know, like once again, you, there's some of you out there who may know about this case. Derek does not. So he's going through this as he would as a a normal person, kind of maybe witnessing this as it happens. So he doesn't know all of the little things that, that do maybe throw a curveball into um, Danielle being a completely innocent lamb in the wood. But there's constant references in this letter to knives and cutting and bleeding to death right and then there's also a reference to that Romeo and Juliet kind of love and that threw me for a loop because that's not a, that's not a fairy tale that's that's like a not a happy you know it's not a happy ending kind of thing it's it ends in a murder suicide right are you familiar with Romeo and Juliet
4: yeah i've heard of them once or twice
0: so it's like star-crossed lovers you know meant to be but their factors around them prevent them from being together and being happy, so they basically just kill each other, and then and then off they go into a forever slumber. And in what you'll find in the next episode is that after um, Danielle stabs her husband and then doesn't call the police for eleven hours, she's going to Google on her cell phone how to slit your wrists, and then how long does it take for you to? bleed out after slitting your wrist and then she's going to slit her wrist and then she's going to call 911. So this is not the only reference she makes to Romeo and Juliet. We'll see another one here because on December 5th, 2018, Danielle Redlick joined MeetMindful.com. And this is a dating site which claims it's a place for like-minded singles who have similar values such as consciousness, diet, yoga, fitness, green living, and travel. And they can all get together if they like yoga and piña coladas and getting caught in the rain and they can meet. So she listed her relationship status as being single and she said she was looking for a long-term relationship. Her user profile said, quote, looking for down-to-earth, kind of deep, would-be-interesting, passionate, zest-for-life type of guy with a sense of humor to spend time with and hopefully share the same definition of love. Also not gonna lie. love the whole Romeo and Juliet fairy tale, but I keep it real. I think having a real meaningful and strong connection is what really appeals to me. end quote. Danielle began communicating with a few men. and the same day that she signed up for Meet Mindful, Danielle was also looking through her husband Michael's emails again. and she somehow found a 2012 email from a woman named Elizabeth Corrigan who had contacted Michael through LinkedIn. So it appeared, that Elizabeth Corrigan and Michael had possibly worked together at some point in the past, and Elizabeth was asking Michael, like, how are you? What's up? Like, are you married? Do you have kids? You know, should we catch up sometime? And um, Michael Redlick had responded to this woman back in 2012, and he said, quote, I am married. Kids are a lot of work, and so is marriage. I'm taking my daughter to her swim meet this weekend, both days So not sure how available I'll be. I will try to reach you between her heats. She's not good, but enjoys being part of the team. Her strengths are acting and singing, not sports. End quote. So Danielle sees this email and she loses it, right? She claims when she saw this interaction, she believed Michael was speaking to his ex-wife, his first wife, whose surname had also been Corrigan. And so she forwarded that email to her own email address and then from there forwarded it back to Michael on December 14th, 2018 writing, quote, you are a lying, rotten son of a bitch. Nice way to talk about your daughter, too. I'm done with you, Mike. We should talk about ending this. I'm ready. You are the most untrustworthy person I've ever known, and I have every right to choose not to be with that kind of person. You had every opportunity to tell me about this the other night. 2012, really? End quote. They kind of brought this up in trial to show that she was sort of like unhinged, I guess, at this point, that she was just seeing things that weren't there, like... She didn't know who this person was. She's upset that Mike said this about his daughter. I don't find what he said about his daughter to be wrong. I mean, I say it about my kids all the time. Like
4: I literally said it like two episodes ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. I remember. And Aaron Hernandez, when we were talking about. It, you were like, none of my, none of our kids are going to be professional athletes, so don't worry. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right.
4: Like my daughter just had, you know, much more chances with the recitals and things like yeah. that. But I mean, I. No, but I, I I'm a little confused. This whole correspondence this interaction this is after that that letter that she wrote to him yes okay so why is she saying i'm ready to end this when she's already she's already said that and she's on the dating site and all that so is there something in between there where there's maybe a rekindling of the relationship even after that letter because it feels like that letter was the the severance of their relationship and then also She's on the dating app. She's talking to other men. So it feels like they're kind of doing their own thing. And yet she's still also going through the emails and then, you know, saying to him, I'm ready to end this. So I, I'm I, obviously she's her. I'm not ignorant to that, but it sounds like she, she's saying it again. Like, I want to end this.
0: She says in the trial, like, I realized that it was hypocritical of me because I was on the dating app and I was talking to other people. Um, I think she's, you know, trying to make it seem like I didn't want to talk to other people. I didn't want to be out of this marriage. I had to do this stuff based on, you know, what he was doing. Like he pretty much gave me no other choice, but it wasn't what I wanted. And obviously I'm still like invested. And and I mean, clearly maybe, maybe she kind of was because she's still looking through his emails. Like if you're done with a person and you and you don't care and you want a divorce, you're not still looking through their emails to see who they're talking to, unless you plan to use it in like a divorce court kind of situation, which could have been potentially what she was trying to do. But yeah, it's it's definitely strange. And you know, she does say in court, like, yeah, I was being hypocritical, but I was angry and I was hurt.
4: Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, I'm not trying to to discredit anything she's saying. I'm just I want to make sure I have it right that, you know, she's still hurt, and it's it's reasonable to assume that even though she wrote that letter, she still loves him. And there's still things that she's finding out after the fact that still cut deep, that still hurt, and things that she wasn't aware of. As she said in here, 2012, they were still together at that point. So, although it's after the fact that she's finding out, this was happening during their relationship. So, I can see. Yeah, but he
0: wasn't doing anything with this woman. It was like an old colleague who was sort of like touching base, catching up. She thought it was his ex-wife, his first wife that he was, like, right. back in communication with because they had the same last name or something. But, um yeah, this is months. Well,
4: based on his behavior, if it's true, I could see how she would interpret it as, like, meeting up with her between heats is not necessarily, you know, to have a cup of coffee.
0: Oh, really? You can't have a cup of coffee between heats?
4: You can, I'm not going to, there's somewhere I could have went with that, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there, <laughs> Stephanie Harlow. Okay.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm bad influence. But what what you need to know is that that email, that long one I read, right? May of 2018. This is December of 2018, right? So several months after, you know, she wrote that that very long right. email. So maybe there was a part of her when she wrote that email that was done, but there was also a part of her when she spilled her soul, bled out- like she said that hoped he would read it and and say oh now it's all clear you know i understand how you feel now i've been wrong all of this time come to me my princess and let's make this all better and and now we're in love and everything's fine again you know there may have been a small part of her that was still hoping that he would finally hear her and um you know maybe admit where he'd been wrong and and improve i don't know yeah but i mean at this point we're at the end of 2018 right and it appeared that the tension the anger hurt and confusion that had been boiling between michael and danielle Redlick for the better part of a decade had finally come to a head and within a month michael Redlick would be dead i rhymed i didn't mean to i didn't mean to rhyme there
4: no co- no no i covered a lot there and i think it's great i think it going into it depending on where you lie on this uh if you're to believe Danielle. Then it was a very tumultuous relationship. There was a lot of issues between them. Uh, It appears that some of those issues as they escalated were uh, witnessed by outside parties, including their children. So it does give some validity to the idea that they were going through some things. Uh, The letters, the email correspondence, things that he was doing, I'm sure all of this digital evidence was uh, hopefully looked at by investigators to corroborate some of the things Danielle was saying he was doing. Uh, I would also hope that the previous women that Michael was allegedly um, seeing were contacted and spoken to as well to confirm some of the interactions that Danielle had spoken about as far as meeting this woman at a meeting. All of these things are little pieces of information that can be confirmed. And not only does it give credence to what she's saying, but it also it gives a gauge as far as her her honesty for investigators. If she's telling the truth about all these, these little trivial things, then it it makes sense that she might be telling the truth about some of the bigger things as well. So they're constantly doing two things there. They're, they're confirming what she's saying, but also gauging her honesty throughout the investigation as they develop it. But that all being the case, the police ended up charging her with murder. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested to see how we got there because even though they were able to confirm most of this, I'm assuming they still decided, and the the prosecution decided that they were going to charge her with murder because they do, they believed that she did kill her husband in a way that wasn't justified. Well, the
0: prosecution wanted her bad. Like, trust me, that's why when you said, "Did they talk to all these? Did they follow?" I guarantee you, they did because they would have been looking for the smallest thing that she was lying about and. Uh, the prosecution wanted her big time. They definitely thought, and I think that a big thing of it was the 11 hour wait time, right? Between the stab and the calling of 911.
4: Mm, don't go there. I want to wait <laughs> now because then we're going to start. We're going to have to cover all that right now. No, I mean, it, I'm really looking forward to the trial aspect of it to see. I We've seen this one angle and most of it's being narrated by Danielle. Now there's going to be another side to it, which is the prosecution side to it as far as, hey, listen, this is who Michael was. However, Let's get to what really matters. Let's get to the night in question, because all of that does not justify, under the laws of Florida, self-defense. All of that stuff, regardless of what he did, it's all about that that moment in time. And so I really want to understand uh, how they approach this. Are they acknowledging Michael's wrongdoings and saying, that's fine, but this is what happened that night?
0: The prosecution does in their opening statements say, like, listen, you're going to hear some things about Michael Redley. It's not going to be good, but- Did he deserve to die for it? You know, the typical kind of, yeah, acknowledging we don't have a perfect person. Yeah.
4: All that matters is that night. And then we got to talk about the stay on your ground law in Florida and all those things. So uh, really, really fascinating case. I can see why people are drawn to it. Looking forward to hearing it next week. It sounds like going out on a limb here. You're the one writing it. But it sounds like this might be a two-parter, maybe.
0: Well, I mean, there's another part following this, so. Definitely. Oh. A t- well, I mean, but maybe you mean you mean additional an additional two parts.
4: No, I'm thinking. Oh God, I mean, it could be. I know you could do it if you had to. So wait, we'll, like, we'll see. What do you
0: mean a two parter? It's already a two parter because this is part one, so that means there's another part.
4: Right, Stephanie. So what I'm saying is, it might just be a two parter.
0: Oh, ooh, okay. Right,
4: right. <laughs> I know that one plus one equals two. What I'm saying is it sounds like we're halfway through the story. I know, man. So we might get to the other half, the next episode, which would make it a two-parter. You know, you're lucky. Crazy. Mind blown. I know. You're
0: lucky that we're not in person, man. I would. Oh, I know.
4: I know. (laughs) Beat me up.
0: I would beat Beat you up. Beat me up, guys. So,
4: yeah. No, great. Uh, From there, we'll see what happens next week. Uh,
0: I think there might be two more parts, honestly. Like, I'm thinking about- there might be two more parts.
4: I mean, it is what it is. I mean, just out of, just because I said it, they'll definitely... Don't we
0: have off coming up?
4: <laughs> you'll find a way. You'll find a way. Either way, we'll get to it. We'll cover it. We know you guys want to hear about it. I want to hear about it. Uh, if you guys are, are interested and want to weigh in on this episode, weigh down in the comments below. If you're on audio, leave a review, five stars preferably, and leave your comment about the case. We do read them. We'd really appreciate it. It helps the channel grow. Means a lot to us, allows us to do what we love doing, which is covering these gase- cases and talking to you guys. Anything else? Criminal Coffee, we're back. We're full bore. There is no lead time on Criminal Coffee, by the way. If you want coffee, we have it in stock. We're ready to ship it out. It's like one to three days that it's being shipped out to you, and we're doing priority. We've gotten the shipping prices down now. We got them locked in. We're using flat rate shipping. So based on where you live and how much you order, it's essentially getting to you for the same price. So you're going to see a reduction in shipping pricing as well. So uh, that's really it. We're Everything's firing on all cylinders right now.
0: Yeah, where can they find us on social media?
4: So if you're looking for us at Crime Weekly, which is why you're here, it's Crime Weekly Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're looking for our coffee, it's Drink Criminal Coffee on Instagram. And it's Drink Criminal on Twitter.
0: Absolutely. We will see you guys next week. Until then, stay safe. And uh, we love you. Bye.
4: All right. Be safe out there, guys. Night.